Hello, everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. We're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals out of 10 in effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to find the most trustworthy resources. We do. We do a lot of studying, a lot of researching, Mm -hmm. make sure we're telling you good stuff. Coming through YouTube thumbnails. (laughs) That's it. It's actually all just YouTube (laughs) thumbnails. We can only use information we get from YouTube thumbnails. Mm -hmm. Before we jump into it, I got my tattoo that I promised during the next fun drive. That was part of the, if we reached 300, I think, mm-hmm. uh, new and upgrading uh, people that signed up to support us on the Max Fun Network, and they did, and I promised to get a tattoo about it, and I did. If you'd like to see it, go check out our social medias, because I posted pictures. Mm-hmm. I'm quite pleased with it. It's very I nice. I think it looks cute. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Um, so, you know, just thank you to everybody who signed up during last year's Max Fun Drive to make that happen. This week, I go first, right? Yes. So, Ellen, co-host. Yes, that's me. Friend. Just friend? <laughs> Am I being friend-zoned? What animal have you brought us? This week, I'm going to be reviewing the Vicuña. That's a pretty name. Isn't it pretty? I'll explain a little bit more about the background of that name in just okay. a moment. Uh, the scientific name is either Lama Vicuña or Vicuña Vicuña, depending on how recent your mm. source is. This is a very recent taxonomic shift. The species was submitted by Megan Clark. Thank you, Megan. And I'm getting my information from the South American Camelid Specialist Group, which is at camelid.org, as well as some other sources that I'll cite as they come up. So if you're not familiar with the Vicuña, they're a little guy. They're only (laughs) about three feet tall at the shoulder, but they do have a really long neck. So that kind of like adds some height. They look kind of like a tiny little llama. Okay. Because they're related to llamas. Mm. Um, so they look kind of like that, but like scaled down. And they're also <laughs> not as fluffy as llamas. But that's kind of what they look like. They are found high up in the Andes Mountains of South America. Their range includes Peru, Bolivia, Argentina, and Chile. And they live about 3,200 to 5,000 meters above sea level, which is 10,000 to 16,000 feet mm-hmm. above sea level. So really, really high up. Yeah. They, they live very high up in the mountains of South America. They belong to the taxonomic family Camelidae. Okay. Uh, they're a Makes camelid, sense. of which they are the smallest member. The littlest. The littlest little camel you ever did see. <laughs> so so are the, the llamas we know also in there? Yeah, so both vicuñas as well as their wild cousins, guanacos, and their domesticated cousins, llamas and alpacas, share this family with uh, their closest relatives, which are the camels. Mm. So domesticated alpacas are believed to be descended from wild vicuñas. Okay. So the vicuña is kind of the wild ancestor of the alpaca, whereas the guanaco is the wild ancestor of the llama. Mm. Um, But vicuñas are still wild. And the American Society of Mammologists actually merged the genus Vicuña, which contains the Vicuña and the alpaca, into the genus Llama with the Llama and the Gunaco. Um, And that merge happened in 2021. So that's why a lot of sources will still call it 
Vicuña Vicuña instead mm-hmm. of Lama Vicuña because it's just a very recent change. Not everybody has updated their terminology yet. But I did want to talk a little bit about the name because the name Vicuña comes from the Quechua language, which is the language that was spoken by the Inca Empire. Mm. Right. So a lot of times when you think of like Peru's history, you think of the Inca Empire. And Quechua is the language that was spoken by the Inca Empire and is still spoken by people in that area today. The meat of vicuñas and other animals, so not just them, the meat was often cured and dried to make what is called charqui, which gives us our English word jerky. Oh. Yeah. I'd never really thought about where the word jerky comes from. That's true. But it's from Quechua. I'm a little bit of a language nerd, so I like when when interesting language things come up for me to talk about. So yeah, that's kind of your intro to the vicuña. So getting into our ratings for this animal, first up is effectiveness, which are physical adaptations, uh, ways that their body has adapted to their environment or, you know, things that they have built in to let them do the things they're trying to do. I'm giving vicuñas a nine out of 10. That's very good. For effectiveness, because living in these really, really high altitudes, there are some interesting things you need to be prepared for. That's right. The first of which is that at these really high altitudes, you get huge differences in the temperature between night and day. Mm. So during the day, the thin atmosphere means that a lot of the UV rays from the sun are passing through to, you know, the ground. So that means you're getting really warm temperatures and a lot of UV from the sun. Mm. But then at night, it gets really, really cold. So you kind of get a huge difference between like intense heat and intense cold. So you need to be prepared for both. This is where the vicuña's fur comes in handy and it is very special their hairs are just incredibly fine they're some of the finest hair in the whole like mammal you know world i guess animals in general right it usually doesn't get much finer than that Um, (laughs) but their hairs are only about 13 microns thick Mm -hmm. which for perspective is half as thick as llama or alpaca wool Mm. so it is even finer than theirs and the hairs are so fine that they they create these little pockets of air. It's like a like a downy layer that insulates their body from outside. So this is both keeping them protected from cold temperatures, but also blocking the rays from the sun so it's not burning them. It's it's helping them with both aspects of kind of the extreme climate that they're facing. Mm-hmm. The Cunha wool is so luxuriously soft that uh, the Inca Empire uh, only permitted royalty to wear it. Mm. So this was, you, you can make, you know, a textile out of their wool uh, and it is extremely soft. But uh, this this was like a sort of a luxury good, you know, like mm-hmm. only royalty was allowed to wear it. Um, today, Italian luxury clothing designer Loro Piana sells many products made of pure vicuña wool, including a crew neck T-shirt for, would you like to guess the price oh, of man. a vicuña wool do you, T-shirt? Do you have this available in U.S. dollar equivalent? It is in, I only have it written oh, down okay. in U.S. dollars. Okay, um, let's say 5000 that was extremely close, actually. $4,785 okay. for a t-shirt. Uh-huh. That is a crew neck, short sleeve t-shirt. Sure. 
made of vicuña wool is $4,785. <laughs> and that wool is so expensive, not only because it is so soft and desirable, but it is really hard to get. It takes a lot of work to extract the wool, and it can't be done very often. So vicuñas aren't domesticated. Mm-hmm. They roam wild in the plains high up in the mountain, in the Andes Mountains. Which means that in order to shear them, you have to catch them. <laughs> so there is an annual traditional roundup called Echaku. This is when vicuñas are herded from the wild and rounded up into these huge pens that are kind of, they're temporary pens. They just put them up for this and then they take them down afterwards. So they they round all the vicuñas up into this pen and then they shear them just as quickly and painlessly as they possibly can and then set them back loose so they can go on about their vicuña business. (laughs) So this is an interesting process, because during the reign of the Inca Empire, the chakus were were carried out under royal decree, and they would only happen every maybe three to four years. But the idea was that they would take in all of the vicuñas, they would shear them, and if there were any that kind of looked like they were like injured or really old they might you know harvest some meat from those but it was really just you shear them and you let them go you weren't allowed to kill them unless you know it was the sort of thing where it was they were going to die anyway and there were like really strict laws of protecting the animals throughout this like harvesting process now these days this practice kind of faded out it wasn't done anymore for a long time and they brought it back Hmm. I'll explain why later, but now it's kind of carried out more locally by like conservation organizations and local governments. So it's it's an interesting like revival of a process that was from history. So, but it also explains why it's so expensive mm-hmm. because you can't just go to a farm, you know, and grab the cunha wool whenever you want. You have to get it in a very narrow window of time. Right. And they're not, you know, domesticated such that they're producing excess wool. Right. Yeah. It still takes a couple of years for their wool to grow back. Right. So you can't harvest wool from every single vicuña Mm. every single year. It's like you're going to kind of get some at a time. So there's not like a steady stream of this material. Whereas you'll hear stories about domestic sheep that escape their you know farm or something oh it's horrible and then they, they, you know, they will grow so much wool to their detriment yeah they get so <laughs> mad at that by the time you you know catch it again they're really suffering for it mm-hmm. um so yeah the wool really helps the vicuña but has also been used by people okay while the fur is really cool it's not the only way that their bodies are adapted to these high altitudes so living so high up the air doesn't have as much oxygen in it as it does down here. If you've ever like climbed up to the top of a mountain and found that it's difficult to catch your breath, mm-hmm. that's why. There's not a lot of oxygen up there. So Vicuña's hearts are huge mm-hmm. in proportion to the rest of their body. Uh, and even their blood is like specially tuned to the environment. So their blood has a high affinity for oxygen, which lets their blood get loaded up with tons and tons of oxygen, as well as it has smaller red blood cells and a lower concentration of red blood cells in the blood, which sounds counterintuitive. You'd think you'd want a lot of red blood cells so that you could carry a lot of oxygen in your blood. But the reason this helps is that it reduces the viscosity 
of the blood. So viscosity is kind of like how difficult it is for a liquid to flow. Mm -hmm. So like when you think of high viscosity, you're probably thinking of like maple syrup, Mm -hmm. right? Or something that's really thick. Uh, Whereas something with low viscosity would be like water. Um, So they have blood with less red blood cells in it to slow it down and it helps it flow through the veins a lot more quickly. So they're able to circulate blood through their body a lot more easily. Okay. And I got that uh, information from a really interesting paper. It was called Oxygen Binding Properties, Capillary Densities, and Heart Weights in High-Altitude Camelids. That was by Klaus D. Jurgens et al. in the Journal of Comparative Physiology in July 1988. That's cool. Yeah. I did give them a deduction, and that is because um, having no horns or antlers like some other like ungulates do, and also being really small, they're kind of vulnerable to predation. What? Are there predators? Pumas. Really? Yeah, pumas will get them. They also have like foxes and there is stuff that can eat them out there and they don't okay. have many ways of protecting themselves from them other than just being quick. Just high ground. Oh, yes. They have <laughs> the highest ground you can possibly have. <laughs> the next category we rate animals on is ingenuity, which is behavioral adaptation. So clever things the animal is doing to not get got. Or or do the getting. To do the getting. Mm-hmm. They're not getting anybody. They're just little guys. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving the Vicuña an 8 out of 10. Wow. Um, they are social, and they live in herds. So females and their young live in family herds, and then males will live in either like bachelor herds or these non-breeding male herds. This is all pretty standard, like yeah. ungulate behavior. This is pretty normal is what mm-hmm. they do. And vicuñas aren't migratory, but they rotate between different areas within their territory for different parts of the day. It's almost like different rooms of their house Mm. for different things that they need to do. So, for example, at night when they're ready to sleep, they move up higher into higher elevations because pumas aren't as likely to be active in those areas. And nighttime is when pumas are awake. They're nocturnal. Mm -hmm. So during the night when pumas are out, the vicuñas go up higher where the pumas aren't as likely to be. So they kind of hide by going up higher at night when it's riskier. Um, And then during the day, when they do come down to feed, they feed in these wide open meadows, like vast expanses of pretty flat looking terrain. And this is so that pumas don't have anywhere to hide. Because if they were to go into like a canyon or something like a valley with a lot of like cliff walls on either side, it would be pretty easy for a puma to sneak up on them. Yeah. One other part of this is that they will have designated areas in their territory for bathrooming. They have certain spots where you go to poop. Okay. They're called latrines. Mm -hmm. I think you've talked about this before. Sounds familiar. (laughs) A lot of times social animals will have a latrine, which is like a designated area where everyone's supposed to poop. Yeah. Um, And the idea behind this is that if you have like a parasite or an illness or something like that that could get propagated through the herd by the poop, you want to keep all the poop in one place. Yeah. And then nobody eats where that poop is. So that the idea is that you're going to be like isolating any potential diseases. So these spots of like concentrated poop mm-hmm. become fertilization. Mm. So the vicuñas all poop in the same spot and all of that poop fertilizes the soil 
And what you end up getting is this little oasis of plant growth. So you'll get this one patch where there's like tons and tons of grass and shrubs in the middle of an otherwise like rocky almost like a desert. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's because that's where all the vicunias were pooping. (laughs) And they make this little patch, you know, of life, which is really important as periods of drought between rainy seasons is getting longer from year to year because of climate change. Mm -hmm. So as the climate is changing, these little vicunia latrines are thought to actually be helping the ecosystem be more resilient to the impact of climate change because these little poop oases, oases, <laughs> oases are, you know, serving as these little refuges for things that rely on plant life to survive. And that is from an article called Vicuña Dung Brings Vegetation to the High Andes. And that was by Isabel Amos Landgraf. And that was for Columbia University's Glacier Hub blog in December of 2020. Mm. So I thought that was very interesting. Finally, for aesthetics for the Vicuña, I'm giving them a full 10 out of 10. They're so cute. (laughs) They're so cute. A a lot of people call their fur the golden fleece because they have this sort of like sandy color to them. It's like a light beige brown. And they have those beautiful baby eyes. Like, you know, I love like camel eyes, Mm -hmm. how they're just big, so big and round and they got the eyelashes. They're so cute. (laughs) Also, the vicuña is featured on Peru's coat of arms. They are the national animal of Peru. Wow. Yeah. So it's a gorgeous animal. They're so pretty. I've never felt vicuña wool, but I watched a lot of videos about their wool. Um, and it seems to be very highly prized. So to wrap things up for the Vicuña, their conservation status is currently of least concern on the IUCN's red list. And that is a huge conservation success story. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like of least concern now, which like doesn't sound that dramatic. It sounds like they're just doing fine. They have not been doing fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so first to kind of back up a little bit uh, for, you know, centuries and centuries, the people of the Andes were harvesting wool from vicuñas sustainably. They were doing it in a way where they were bringing them in, shearing them, not hurting them, setting them back loose. Under the Inca Empire, the Vicuña population was thought to number around 2 million. So tons of these guys running around, roaming free, having a great time. And then the Spanish showed up, yeah, which is never a good thing. So <laughs> the Spanish uh, colonized the region and they overhunted the Vicuñas. They were actually hunting them, like mm-hmm. killing them. They weren't just bringing them in and shearing them. They were actually completely killing them. But in addition to that... The Spanish also brought sheep and cattle and new livestock that they were bringing into these areas that were then introducing diseases Mm. to things like, you know, the camelids that lived up in these mountains um, and also competing with them. Right. And so you start to see this like huge population collapse of the vicuñas kind of brought them really to the brink of extinction. And then under Simón Bolívar, who was the first governor of Peru after its liberation from Spain in 1821, uh, the vicuñas were protected by really harsh punishments for killing Ah. them. So (laughs) it was a a bad thing. If you were caught messing with the vicuñas, you were in real big trouble. That's not to say that people still didn't poach them, right? Because you need money to survive 
Vicuñas were a huge like source of money if you could get your hands on them. So uh, people did still poach them. And then by the mid-1900s, there were less than 10,000 left, mm. which down from 2 million is a tiny fraction of what there used to be. Right. In fact, just a brief detour. In 1958, United States President Dwight D. Eisenhower's chief of staff, Sherman Adams, receives, among other gifts, but the main gift is a Vicuña coat mm. that he received as a gift from a textile manufacturer. This textile manufacturer just so happened to be under investigation by the Federal Trade Commission at the time and was kind of doling out these bougie gifts to all of these his friends in high places, basically, mm. to try to garner favor, to sway the investigation in his favor. Right. And Chief of Staff Sherman Adams did not declare this gift like he didn't tell anybody about uh -oh. it and then congress found out about this gift of this vicuña coat and earlier i mentioned to you the price of a vicuña wool t-shirt and this was an entire tailored coat right so this was a very very expensive gift um that he did not tell anybody about so once congress found out about it he was under serious pressure from his colleagues and he resigned from office over this coat Mm -hmm. So just to give you an idea of like the scale of how valuable their wool is, it is political bribe grade. <laughs> <laughs> Did he get to keep the coat though? I probably, I, ha I would have to guess what else are you going to do with it? You know, like I don't, who's going to buy it from you? <laughs> the coat of shame. <laughs> Make an interesting museum piece. I guess so. It's probably in a museum somewhere. I bet. Um, but yeah, it's that's, that's about how valuable mm -hmm. that one coat ended the career of what, who was at the time one of the most powerful men in the world. This is why I have to take yearly training about not taking corporate gifts. <laughs> he ruined it for the rest of us. <laughs> now we all have to watch webinars every year. <laughs> so uh, after that, in 1969, the Convention for Vicuña Conservation was founded, and there uh, they passed legislation which banned the international trade of vicuñas and their wool until their numbers could recover. So this was an important stipulation. This wasn't a permanent ban. This was just like a until things are better sort of thing. And they did. Like, population steadily grew eventually to the point that uh, they did resume the trade of Vicuña products. That's why you can get them now. Okay. With legal guardrails in place. So this wool is still only harvested at certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. It's still done, you know, under the sort of guidance of conservation organizations. But it is, you know, the chaku is a huge part of their conservation success. It gives the local community a source of income, mm -hmm. right? Because they get to, you know, bring in the the vicuña wool, and it's very valuable. So it's a huge source of income for the community. But it's also an incentive to like protect and conserve the animals and the grasslands that they graze on. Um, and it also discourages poaching because if they're regularly bringing the vicuñas in and shearing them, then they're useless to poachers. So it. it worked you know like Good. bringing it back worked and and vicuñas are are all the way up to least concern on the iucn red list which is a huge improvement that's awesome yeah they we almost lost them and then we're able to bring them back their high altitude specialization probably helped with not having to deal with introduced predators and competition as much as mm. otherwise right yeah probably not having to deal with as many like invasive predators and mm -hmm. stuff it's interesting like these extremophiles and stuff can be kind of shielded from right 
certain pressures. But yeah, I have to imagine that their reclusiveness and that their specialist tendencies probably help them out quite a bit. They're also really hard to catch. I saw so many videos of people like, I saw videos of them running. These little guys are booking it. They're so <laughs> fast. <laughs> They're really zooming. It's really cute. I, I, I kind of thought that they might do that little bounce that llamas do sometimes. Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about? The yeah. little like, boing, boing. It's not like that. They're... <laughs> <laughs> They're not here to play. <laughs> They're gone. That's cool. Yeah. So it's a beautiful animal. Love them. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's the Vicuña. Let's uh, take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to your animal. Hey, let us guess. You love books, but wish you had more time to read. Or maybe you used to read a lot, but life has gotten in the way. Kids, grad school, you name it. Maybe you don't know where to start and bookish social media is overwhelming. How do people on TikTok read so many books? Oh my God, I don't know. And maybe you've been reading the same book for six months and now it's permanently attached to your bedside table. Maybe you don't even know what you like to read anymore. We're reading glasses and don't worry, we got you. We'll get you back into reading and help you enjoy books again. Reading Glasses, every week on Maximum Fun. Which animal has the most bones? Why isn't Pluto a planet? Why are bees electrically charged? Let's find out together on our show, Let's Learn Everything, where we learn anything and everything interesting. My name's Caroline, and I studied biodiversity and conservation. My name's Tom, and I studied computer science and cognitive blah, 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 blah. Mm, Did you? <laughs> <laughs> and my name's Ella, and I studied stem cells and regenerative medicine. On our show, we do as much research as you would for a class, but we don't get in trouble for making each other laugh. Subscribe to Let's Learn Everything every other Thursday on Maximum Fun. Okay, my love, what beautiful, charming, charismatic, unproblematic (laughs) animal do you bring this week that I'm going to love and adore and have no issue with whatsoever? Well, the name is somewhat cute at surface (laughs) value. Um, I'm going to talk about the cookie cutter shark. This has been long awaited. Yes. I'm very excited for this. Scientific name, Isistius brasiliensis. Mm, interesting name. Yes. The genus name Isistus refers to the, I believe, the Egyptian god. Isis? Yes. The, the, okay. This species was submitted by Alison Bataille. Thank you, Alison. Yes. So this is something I think a lot of people know like a little bit of cursory information about. <laughs> it's called the cookie cutter shark for some gruesome reasons. <laughs> and I'll be getting my information from Florida Museum, Australian Museum, and Animal Diversity Web. Mm, when you've got entries on the Florida Museum and the Australian Museum, <laughs> something sinister is brewing. <laughs> <laughs> so these are sharks, um, though I would say they are the least sharky sharks. What do you mean by that? They don't look like sharks to me. They don't? <laughs> <laughs> You're stereotyping. <laughs> although i guess if you once you get into the mouth bits that's where it becomes more obvious that's really where you want to retain the shark-like features right, right? uh so, it counts. so their bodies are cigar shaped often referred to as cigar sharks uh they are dark brown on top with a lighter on the underside very typical sure however they have a dark neck band oh really yeah oh that little... goes like all the way around their neck that's dark 
a little choker moment. Right? <laughs> and they've they've got these small little fins. All Aww. of their fins are small. Aww. And this like very blunt, short nose. It sounds adorable. Very torpedo-esque. Okay. Everything you're telling me so far, A-okay. Yeah, that's fine. It's all cute. Yeah, sure. So males get up to 42 centimeters long or 16 and a half inches, whereas females get up to 56 centimeters or 22 inches long. Mm-hmm. So not very big as far as sharks go. No. Where they're found, very large distribution, as evidenced by my sources. <laughs> uh, they are found in seas as far north as Japan and as far south as southern Australia. Mm, nowhere uh, safe. Yeah. Uh, so they're found at depths below a kilometer. Okay. Uh, or 3,281 feet. Oh, thank you. I really don't know. <laughs> um, You'd think I'd know by now. I don't. And we typically find them close to land masses and islands and things. Okay. They're not like right up at the beach. No. But they're also not like down in Mariana's Trench, right? They're I don't like... think so, at least. <laughs> they belong to the taxonomic family Dalatiidae, or the kite fin sharks. Cool. I didn't notice any notable relatives. The one that caught my eye was the pocket shark. Pocket shark? Yeah, which lives in deep water off the coast of Chile. I love Pokemon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's get right into it with effectiveness. Everything's going great so far. Mm-hmm. I have no issues whatsoever. Um, just burn this image into your head. Everything's going so good. <laughs> I'm so happy. Uh, so for effectiveness, I'm giving an 8 out of 10. Uh-huh. Uh, first, let's talk about their lips. Uh, I saw yeah. them referred to as suctorial lips. What? No, you didn't. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they didn't say to say it like that. They didn't. <laughs> Was that That's creative, my panache. Is that a creative choice <laughs> on your part, your part? So this lets them uh, <laughs> suck onto flat surfaces. Okay. <laughs> like a suction cup. It's, yes. Okay. You know what that makes me think of? Huh? You know in Monsters, Inc., when they've got that machine that like sucks the screams out of... You know what I'm talking about? The thing at the end? It's the thing, it's like the scary machine that sucks the screams out. And there's one part where, like, the bad guy, Randall, is, like, showing off how it works. Spoiler. And he, okay, sorry, spoiler for Monsters, Inc. (laughs) It came out 20 years ago. And he (laughs) puts the scream sucker thing on the lips of, like, an employee or something like that. Yes. And it, like, gives them, like, lip filler look. Yeah. Lips are all huge and red and swollen. Okay. Where are we going with this? I don't know. Sectorial right. lips. That's what you said. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the action is very similar to plecos. Or is that what those are called? Or plecos? Oh, the ple- Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yes. The little guys that you buy at the pet store yeah. and suck on the side of your uh-huh. fish tank. And then they get into the, ocean, into the water and cause problems. But these things are not sucking onto the side of tanks. Mm. Or rocks or anything like that. What possibly, pray tell, (laughs) could they be sucking on the side of? Well, the teeth should give an indication. (laughs) Uh, So, on the top jaw, they have smaller hooked teeth. And on the bottom jaw is larger, sharper teeth. And those teeth are connected at the base, forming a saw-like structure, Mm. like a bandsaw. Okay. Yes. So we've got two different types of teeth going on. Uh huh. So what cookie cutter sharks are known for are taking chunks out of large uh, fish and aquatic mammals. Mm-hmm. 
not unlike a cookie cutter would take out of dough. <laughs> Uh, it is a lot of times a perfect circular chunk of flesh that they take out. Which is not a shape you often see in right. nature. You wouldn't normally see <laughs> a perfect circle missing from something's body. Right. And these are things like whales, much larger fish, lar- mm. much larger sharks. Something that's not going to miss <laughs> one chunk of skin. Right. But there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Uh, So first, to wrap up their teeth, uh, they will swallow and digest their teeth as they shed. Wait, what? Yes. Ew. So sharks shed their teeth fairly often. So these, they will digest them, uh, which kind of does like a calcium conservation thing. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That's gross, but <laughs> but yeah, that's fine. That, yes. that makes sense now, I guess. I knew that sharks shed their teeth frequently. Yes. I don't know what I thought happened to them. That well, they just... I think a lot of them just fall to the floor of the ocean right, and, and then, wash up on the beach. I yeah. Guess. And then you pick it up and put it on a necklace. Yeah. That, that's what I thought <laughs> happened to all of them. Right. Uh, my final thing for effectiveness I want to talk about was something I didn't know prior. And that is... Bioluminescence. What? Yes. No. Uh Uh-huh. So they have light-producing organs called photophores on the underside of their body, except on that collar I mentioned, that dark band around their neck. Okay. But the photophores give off this green glow on the bottom. Do they really? Yeah. No way. And I'll talk about what that does in the ingenuity section. Oh. Okay. Um, I, I said that was the final one, but the actual final one <laughs> <Okay. laughs> are, of course, denticles. Yes, very good. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so these are the the scales that sharks often have um, that give them kind of that unique texture, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> it's good as an armor for them and yeah. uh, lets them move through water easier usually. Yeah, it's like a hydrodynamic, Mm -hmm. brings up the flow of the water around their body thing. Yep. Not pronounced denticles. No. Nope. As (laughs) as I think I've had to correct you probably a couple times on this podcast (laughs) so far. I prefer it, though. I know. Uh, So, getting right into ingenuity. Please. Giving a 7 out of 10. Okay. I think their whole thing is pretty smart. So, first of all... They migrate the water column. So they, they're in deeper water during the day, and then they move up into shallower water at night. That's a good time to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's fewer, like, birds, flo- like, seabirds flying around the surface and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It might also be a, a temperature and light thing. Now, their hunting method comes back to that bioluminescence. Really? So that bioluminescence attracts predators. Mm. Wait. <laughs> right? Hold on. Because that sounds like the opposite of what you want. Uh-huh. You don't want to attract predators. They're the bad guys. Well, the things it wants to take chunks out of are very large. Okay. So these are things that could be predators, uh-huh. but only if it's not successful in this next part. <laughs> you know, say that predator sees this bioluminescence, thinks, oh, that's something I can eat. Mm-hmm. Right before that predator attacks, the shark turns and bites. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm floored. It, it, it uno reverses <laughs> <laughs> something that is often much much larger than itself. Uh huh. So that right before the attack, it turns and bites, and sometimes it's it, like, call an ambulance, <laughs> but not for exactly. me. <laughs> and sometimes it's even using that attacker's momentum to help with the bite. Really? For this next part. 
Okay, because that makes sense because it's, it's coming at you real fast. Uh-huh. That means you do not have to like put the effort in yes. to get the force, right? It's going to be the force of their impact against you, mm-hmm. not yours. Like, oh, that's interesting. Right. That's so cool. Now, here's where the, the most interesting part is, and it's the bite itself. So it'll latch on with those lips and teeth and then spin their body to make that circular cut. Oh. Tearing out a chunk. It's like a like a death roll, like the alligator death roll. I think so, yes. But they're doing it to slice through. Well, I could Okay, so imagine so, you're So using... imagine that that it's the bottom jaw that's doing the slicing. Right. Right. So it has to do that 360 spin to 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 do the full circle cut. Like a can opener. Right. Yeah. So what this ends up being like is less of a cookie cutter and more of a melon baller type motion. <laughs> <laughs> like an ice cream scoop. <laughs> oh, because you got to twist the melon baller to get the whole. Oh, it, that's gruesome. Right? That's ghoulish. Oh, I hate that. But to use their namesake, if the bottom teeth are doing the job of the cookie cutter, then the top teeth would be like the hands that would be pulling the disc of the cookie dough around from the surrounding dough. <laughs> so yeah it, do, it uses those bottom teeth to cut that circle and then those top hooked teeth and lips will pull out the chunk okay oh that sucks or a plug as it's often referred a to a plug yes a plug of flesh oh god that's the word <laughs> now just remember back to a couple minutes ago <laughs> <laughs> That's um, horrifying. Can you imagine? You see this little guy, like you. You see, oh yeah, that looks like a nice little glowing snack for me. It's mm, <laughs> gonna be so good. You open your fridge in the middle of the night. You're like, mm, there's yeah. a nice yummy snack. You reach for it, and then you see this monstrosity. Suddenly, at the very last second, you realize what terrible fate is about <laughs> to befall you. You're like, no. <laughs> now that's not to say that's the only method of you know only attacking things that are attacking it. It'll sure. also go after things. <laughs> Great. So they're known to take bites out of much larger fish, including sharks, marine mammals. So that includes whales, dolphins, even pinnipeds, so seals and sea lions. Mm, and those are feisty. They'll uh-huh. get you. Uh, squid and even submarines. <laughs> <laughs> Little guy. That's not it. That's not right. <laughs> You're not getting anything. That's a bad idea. <laughs> I am imagining... Being aboard a submarine, you're like doing a research dive or something mm-hmm. like that. Everything's going good, and then you hear on the side of the glass, you hear this. Boom, <laughs> boom, <laughs> boom. <laughs> you look yeah. at maybe like there's a window or something. You look out, you see one of these little guys with this little like horrible nightmarish chainsaw teeth, right. just like thunking against the glass. Mm-hmm. Please <laughs> bite. <laughs> There are at least two confirmed cases of humans being non-fatally bitten by these. Oh, no. Yes. Both happened in the waters off of Hawaii. Um, I don't like that humans have been bitten by this. I don't... <laughs> I was taking some peace and thinking, like, that's that's for other animals to worry yeah. about. Yeah. I mean, the, in the Florida museums, they, they keep what's called the International Shark Attack File. It currently lists five non-fatal attacks on humans all five in hawaii 
Okay. This is enough reason to never set foot in the ocean again. The And the, the news stories I found were often marathon swimmers oh. that were doing very long swims and they're out there at night. Mm. So that kind of goes back to them coming up into the shallower waters at nighttime. Mm-hmm. And then uh could sometimes be that there's lights on boats that are attracting squid. Oh, okay. So maybe it's like a, a lot of shark bites are cases of mistaken identity where the shark thinks that you are something that you are not and mm-hmm. and seals and sea lions are a huge thing that you know humans get mistaken for by sharks all the time mm-hmm. so if we resemble something that the shark might think oh i could take a little just a little something a little right. chomp chomp it well, makes sense to be clear it did take the full chomp so mission accomplished <laughs> they got what they wanted yeah The the Uh, shark's in the lead, I think. Yeah. (laughs) The shark's winning. Yeah, it's rough. Uh, The bite doesn't usually kill the the things that they are biting. Mm -hmm. It could technically be classified as a parasite for that reason. Oh. Well, well, there's something. (laughs) Because it's interesting because you said they're they're kind of a small little shark. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of sharks like that, that means that they are extremely limited in what they can eat based on the size of the thing's body right you can really only eat what you can fit in your mouth right or what is small enough for you to kill if it's big enough you're not gonna be able to take it down and you can't eat it right but with these they're like doesn't matter takes chunkins out yeah it doesn't matter what it is take a chunk out of anything who cares yeah basically they do also go after things they can swallow whole okay uh, so things like crustaceans and smaller squid and stuff Cover your bases so yeah you'll often see pictures of game fish with these holes in them, <laughs> a lot of times it's healed over for in mammals and such, mm. um, so that it, it wasn't necessarily a recent bite. It's just that just heals over, but then that's going to leave a circular scar. God, that sucks. With a you know a pit basically. That's awful. <laughs> that is terrible. Yeah. On the list of animals, I would hate to be bitten by. It's got to be number one. And I don't think you'd even get a chance to like fight back or anything because by the time you notice it, it's it's probably too late. Yeah, it's already like sunk in there and everything. If you can somehow grab it, I guess, and keep it from spinning. But then it's like, what? (laughs) That's not even going to help you at that point, right? Like, it's just it's going to be done with you and swim away. It's not going to try to like fight you to the death. Oh or no, no, like no! That, right? But if you could somehow s- stop it mid bite before taking the chunk, I don't yeah, know. you got to be quick on the draw <laughs> with that one. Oof! Oh, this is horrible. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. I hate this. And that wraps up ingenuity. Okay, I'll give him that. <laughs> Aesthetics four out of ten. Really? Yeah. Hold on, I haven't seen a picture of one in a while. Let me look up a picture real quick. The frontal view of like a head-on frontal view is actually hilarious and terrifying. <laughs> Let me see if I can pull it up for you. Oh no! Oh! <laughs> it's yep. terrible. It also doesn't help a lot of the image that you'll find are of preserved specimens. So it's not flattering. Yeah, they're not at their best. They did not wake up like this. <laughs> this can't. This can't possibly be what they actually look like. Oh, there's an Octonauts episode. Ooh. They look cute on Octonauts. I mean... They kind of have to, right? (laughs) Octonauts isn't going to do that. Octonauts isn't going to inflict psychic damage upon children. (laughs) This sucks. I see why you give them a four. Here's a drawing. And specifically, I wanted to draw attention to the head-on view. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. terrible that's embarrassing (laughs) oh 
this poor bait. What an unfortunate creature. <laughs> Their conservation status is least concern. Population trend unknown. <laughs> I'm going to cue in the X-Files name. <laughs> and that's based on an IUCN um, assessment from 2017. I, I mean... That doesn't feel good to know that we don't know what they're up to up there. What are they, what are they building? Are they amassing an army? Who knows? They sometimes get pulled up by trawlers as bycatch. Can um, you imagine? <laughs> you pull up one of these things, you're like, ah! It's probably not the worst thing they're pulling up either. That's true, yeah. So You were probably no longer affected by jump scares <laughs> if you're already pulling up stuff from the deep ocean. I've seen some of those things. Basket stars do me in. I, I can't with the basket stars. That's terrible. Hmm. They're the ones with all the spindly yeah, looking arms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there, there's those reported bites of humans, and they're, yeah. they're they're kind of a nuisance with game fish because it, it like lowers the value, I suppose. But oh, well. <laughs> they're a nuisance to my psyche. <laughs> and then the submarines also. It's not like a ah oh, no, we're stranded now. It's more of a they, they take a bite out of like a radar dish or something. Oh, oh, <laughs> little guys. Was that the ingenuity deduction? Right there. <laughs> they just <laughs> thunking their little heads into a submarine. I don't know what that stuff is made of, but I'm sure it's not digestible. <laughs> <laughs> That's not tasty, little guy. Yeah. Oh, bless them. God, what a horrible creature. <laughs> I say this with so much love in my heart and respect for the hustle. Like... <laughs> <laughs> like y'all seem to have it figured out you seem to have a great system going uh mm-hmm. things are going super good for you cookie cutter shark i respect everything you're trying to do please continue doing it as far away from me as physically possible i make it a point to stay out of the ocean at night so I'm yeah right. <laughs> for, yeah for sure for very many reasons yeah so if you see <laughs> if the water starts a glowing you best get to going <laughs> <laughs> I usually say what a great animal at the end. Yeah. What an animal. Sleep tight. (laughs) Oh, it's late at night when we're recording this, too. This is going to be awful. It's one of the animals ever. (laughs) Well, um, I hope that everybody listening has had some feelings about what they've heard today. I can't say that you've enjoyed it. <laughs> it felt in that same category as the bot fly and yeah. such a little bit. We're striking some similar chords. Um it's good it's a good return to form for Christian mm-hmm. Weatherford. We hope that you have had fun with us here today. Uh, if you have, I would love it if you could leave us a good review on your podcatcher. Um, we read them and they make us very happy, such as um, a couple that I wanted to say thank you to was on Apple Podcasts. One of them was from the DLB Child. And they said, my dad recommended this to me, a 10, almost 11 year old, and it is my favorite. I'm trying to listen to each episode from number one that has proven a fun challenge considering I started listening a year ago. With all that to say, I hands down declare that this is the best podcast ever. P.S. Your pop culture references are amazing and hilarious. P.S.S. You seriously don't know how much I appreciate your podcast. We did it. Amazing. Thank you. I'm so glad that somebody else understands our bizarre pop culture references because sometimes I think we're really pushing it. I'm sure they appreciate me making that same Star Wars joke. (laughs) 
<laughs> Six times, probably. <laughs> Naruto, 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 Naruto. <laughs> and an, another very kind review came from JHO001, and they said, Just the Zoo of Us has gotten me through everything from 12-hour car rides to finals week. If you have even a passing interest in animals or just like fun facts, this is the place to go. I really appreciated that. Yeah. I always like it when people tell me that they listen to us on car rides, because then I feel like we get to go on adventures with them. <laughs> I feel like I get to be part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. I get to be there for that journey, and it makes me happy. So thank you to everybody who listens to us on your fun adventures. Yeah. Um, If you like what you heard today, you can come hang out with us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have a really awesome Discord server. Everybody is super nice and fun to talk to. I've also been posting on TikTok again. Um, that's under my username. It's ellen.weatherford. And I've, I've been posting a lot about uh, Pokemon and the real life animals that Pokemon are based on. And they're really fun i work really hard on them mm-hmm, <laughs> i don't think tiktoks mm-hmm. are supposed to be hard but i work really hard on them to make sure they're good uh so if you use tiktok you can come follow me on there and links to everything will be in the show description uh thank you to maximum fun for having us on the network alongside the other amazing shows that are on there um if you want to support our show and keep us going uh as you'll you may have noticed we did not run ads during this so we're supported by people who listen and like our show and decide they want to support us. If you want to be a part of that, you can head over to MaximumFun.org and sign up to, to support us and the other shows that we're buddies with. And finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our wonderful theme music. Maybe a deceptively chipper theme music for this particular episode. I think we've maybe laid a trap, <laughs> I think, for people. We've lured them in like, ooh, we're having a great time. Happy peppy... You can you can only enjoy the highs <laughs> when there are lows. <laughs> what an emotional roller coaster this has been. Thanks everybody. That's all for this week. Thank you. See you later. Bye now. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.